0: Good morning, Philadelphia, and welcome to Pulling Focus. I'm your host, Gretchen Clausing, and for the next hour, we're going to be putting some great soundtracks and film scores in the foreground and talking about what's happening in local film and digital media culture. And I've got a guest physically in the studio with me today. Super excited to be uh, speaking with (laughs) Tiffany Naiman in just a little bit. She is the director of the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music Industry program and is also a David Bowie scholar and we are talking with Tiffany because this is Philly Loves Bowie Week. It is still going on through the 14th of this month and we're going to be talking about David Bowie and film as well. So to get us started here is some of the, the Mr. Bowie himself here on Pulling Focus.
1: Not always well Don't tell me truth hurts Little girl Cause it hurts like hell But down in the underground We'll find someone true. Down in the underground
0: David Bowie, Goblin King, singing underground from the film Labyrinth here on Pulling Focus. Good morning. Good morning. This is Gretchen Clausing. I'm the host this morning. And I'm excited because, as I said before, I have a guest in the studio with me this morning, and that is Tiffany Naiman. Tiffany is the director of the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music's music industry program, as well as lecturer in musicology department. She's a scholar of popular music. Uh, Temporality and Disability Studies. She currently serves as the co-chair of the LGBTQ study group of the American Musological Society. And she's developed a specialization as a David Bowie scholar. And that's what we're going to talk about. We are going to talk about that this morning. And her work is published in Black Star Rising, Purple Rain, uh, the Bloomsbury Handbook of Popular Music Video Analysis, David Bowie, critical perspectives, and enchanting David Bowie space, time, body, and memory. And besides all that, she's also a DJ, an electronic musician performing under the moniker Neon Grey. She's the experimental film and music programmer for OutFest Los Angeles. She manages musical artists. She's a creator of multiplicity of club nights and one-off musical events in L.A., San Francisco, Philly. And she's also a film producer. And so we're going to talk about all of those things Somehow, in the next 45 minutes. So anyway, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Tiffany in here to Pulling Focus. Tiffany, we did it. We finally
2: made it here. We made it. We made it. And we made it for Bowie Week. So that's how it was all supposed to go down, I think.
0: It was supposed to go down. We had plans to do this earlier. And then we had, you know, various, you know, life things intervening, but we cat, are here. Cat problems. Cat problems. Yes, we Maybe both we should talk about cat people. Cat people <laughs> and cat problems. But anyway, it's so great to have you here. Tiffany and I uh, go uh, in the Wayback Machine to when we were both working on the Philadelphia Festival of World Cinema back in the, the good old 90s here in Philly. And then she went off to the West Coast and went and got a graduate degree and now is a a PhD and all of this and and so let's let's start there. How did you find that path ultimately into like academia and you know doing all this like critical media studies work? Like what what clicked for you? I think mainly I was in the
2: film industry. I moved out there to LA thinking well, I worked at the Festival of World Cinema. I'm sure I can get a job. Um, <laughs> and uh, ultimately I did. And I, I started working for Outfest then. But um, I worked at a regular film studio. And I looked around one day and just thought, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to do marketing and all of that sort of thing. I was tired of it. I wanted I wanted to be around people that read books instead of scripts. And um, I had never gone to college. Um, so I started going to community college and then transferred into UCLA, got a BA, got a master's, got another master's, and a PhD. But what really clicked for me was the, the very first um, moment I got to write a graduate paper. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I, had, I had thought I was just going to be an English teacher in high school. And then I found out there was a thing called musicology. Nobody, nobody tells you that's a career when you're growing up. They're like, doctor, lawyer, not musicologist or David Bowie scholar. you know. But my very first paper in graduate school I wrote was about David Bowie, about outside the record and his song, The Heart's Filthy Lesson. And I had gotten really interested in French critical theory and Baudrillard and all of that. And and he had this idea of trans aesthetics. And I was like, well, that's what Bowie's doing on outside. Oh, uh. my brain exploded. And I went deep and hard into this paper. And, and it got accepted into the first ever David Bowie Symposium.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I didn't actually, I didn't even know that story. So that's why we do this yeah. that's why we have these conversations and so then that you kind of continued on from there
2: yeah I'm I, I'm gonna sidetrack a little bit to this because it was very strange my my mother had passed away at the same time and um, we weren't super tight there weren't pictures of me everywhere in the house but the in the back of her closet when I was cleaning out her house was this mm-hmm. giant paper mache head of David Bowie that I had made in the eighth grade. And I would stay after school and I'd glue on every hair and hang it upside down. It was, I was trying to make the cover of Aladdin Sane on a very large scale. And the day I found that was the day that I found out that I had gotten into the symposium. Isn't that crazy? And there's like this David, like David Bowie, everywhere in my life thing. <laughs> that is um, fantastic. Do, yeah.
0: you, you still don't have the paper mache head, do you? Oh, I do. It's
2: hanging on my office wall. <laughs>
0: fantastic. <laughs> I want to see a picture of it. So, well, anyway, we started off the show with, you know, you gave me some suggestions for music, and we're going to go through some of that. And I, but I, I had one just to kind of throw in there to start out, and we started out with Underground. And you kind of laughed and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe uh, that one wasn't on my list. So, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, and and you teach, you teach about Bowie at, at UCLA. So could you talk a little bit about... How you prepare that course, and maybe what was some of the thinking around? You know, how well some of his work ages, or or not, or how complicated it can be over Absolutely. time. Absolutely,
2: it is complicated, uh, especially that one. I started teaching the class. Um, it was called "It's the Freakiest Show: David Bowie's Intertextual Imagination," um, and I started teaching it at Stanford when I was teaching there, and I would show some of his films um because it was all about intertextuality and his the books that he read and how it influences music and the movies he made and things like that. And I I used to throw in both his episode of SpongeBob and Labyrinth at the end, kind of like, oh, we made it kids and we're gonna have a good time now. And um the last time I taught it, a young woman said to me, So this movie Labyrinth is a little bit creepy. Um, it says, you know, she's she 15 or 16 years old and he's this like 40-something goblin king that wants to marry her and steals her baby brother to make it happen. She's like, it's pretty creepy. And, you know, when we first saw it in the 80s, we weren't thinking in those terms or anything like that. And, and it was sort of eye-opening for me. I was like, oh, yeah, that is kind of messed up, you know, <laughs> as much as I love Jim Henson and you know, as classic as this image of Bowie is, the base storyline is pretty creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I don't, it's not on my syllabus anymore. There's plenty of other <laughs> Bowie to teach. Um, I talk about it in that way now, mm-hmm. you know, and we can bring it up because a lot of people have seen it, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not It's not one of my high points on the syllabus anymore. Well,
0: let's talk about one of the high points to maybe listen to some of the music. So you mentioned uh, Cat People.
2: Cat people, yes. Um, I think it's one of the sexiest songs David Bowie ever wrote. Um and, you know, David Bowie being sexy is one thing, but his music I wouldn't say um was overly sexual ever. Um but there was something really just it's packed with desire and and it works with this whole you know, it's a very weird film right of the the feline and all of the the darkness and I think it's just one of those movie moments where music really makes the film right it really brings it all together for you and leaves an impact and it's one of those songs I think that stands out and that you can listen to without ever seeing the movie as well and still get the same vibe.
0: Okay, so we're gonna take a listen to um, David Bowie's Cat People, which is on the soundtrack to Cat People here on Pulling Focus. You're listening to Pulling Focus here on WPPM, and that was music from the film The Falcon and the Snowman, uh, featuring David Bowie. Music by Pat Metheny, right? Tiffany? Is that, you know? The Pat so, Metheny Group. Yes. And um, so I'm a guest here in the studio, and we are taking advantage of the fact that, that I'm sitting across from a, a David Bowie scholar. To talk about David Bowie in film, both, you know, on screen as his charismatic self or, you know, providing music to soundtracks, you know, in honor of the, you know, Philly Loves Bowie Week, which is going on until I think January 20, January 14th. And, you know, also my friend Tiffany's in town and, and been wanting to kind of catch up with her and all the things that she does in her role at the UCLA um, Herb Alpert School of Music's music industry program and all the other things that she does from uh, being uh, a musician herself, a curator, um, creator of all kinds of uh, one-off musical events and, and multimedia, multi-platform, trans, everything. So, um, Tiffany, it's so great to have you here. So, why, Why? What, what, what do you love about um, The Falcon and the Snowman and, and that piece of music?
2: Well, I loved having those two pieces back to back because they're around the same time period. Um, this is uh, just after, um, I think it's just after <laughs> Let's Dance uh, came out. Um, it, it, after, after Bowie had done Tonight, um, which he wasn't really happy with. He started doing a lot of movie soundtracks, um, and it shows his taste in collaboration. I think. I mean, he's a great collaborator. It's something I always teach about. It's not. It's about intertextuality, um, because he's collaborating with people that he's reading and and meeting and things like that. And you know, Cat People was with Giorgio Moroder, and then you get him with Pat Metheny. And he writes these lyrics to other people's music that are just extraordinary and evocative in in only a way that Bowie could do it in his uh, baritone voice as well. And, you know, I talked about how sexy I think Cat People is. And then on the flip side, I, I also think that This Is Not America is sexy and thoughtful um, and... It it's it's one of the things that uh, I'm going to talk about in the book that I have coming out called Bowie in America. He writes a lot about America in different kinds of ways. You know, we get, I'm afraid of Americans. This is not America. Young Americans. You know, he has an obsession with America and how we function as a nation and the people in it. When he wrote Valentine, which was really about school shootings in America in a very subtle way, um, and I think this is one of the most sort of thoughtful pieces uh, that didn't get a lot of attention paid to it during that Reagan era, right? Um, in the ways in which our ideals and what we want and what we envision from this place isn't what's actually happening. And I think Bowie was always interested in that. My, The piece that's coming out in Black Star, Purple Rain is about the play Lazarus. Lazarus. And so many people think... Oh, it's Lazarus raising from the dead. He was sick. But I point out how it's very much about Emma Lazarus and you know her saying on the Statue of Liberty and that Bowie was this immigrant to this country. His home was in America. He ends the script of the play with Emma Lazarus's words, mm-hmm. um, which people don't know because everybody doesn't sit and read the script. Mm-hmm. So I think he was always really interested in the dualism that is found in America. Right. This openness, this desire for freedom and creativity, and then this very sort of oppressive, fascistic nature that has really come to a head in the last few years after his death, actually. So,
0: yeah. So you've got the book and then you've you've got an an article that's coming out in another collection. Yeah. Okay. gotcha. Two different things. So busy. (laughs) So busy. <laughs> well, let's do another. Let's listen to another piece of music um, associated with 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 Bowie and and film. But this time, why don't we talk a little bit about The Hunger? Because I know it's my favorite it's your movie favorite. of all time. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about The the Hunger and then we'll we'll listen to some music from the from the soundtrack.
2: Oh, my gosh. There's so much to say about The Hunger. I again, I'm going to say the word sexy. <laughs> um you know for me as a as a teenager uh first seeing that film it really it made me (laughs) don't be scared everybody but it made me feel very at home um it was i was a goth kid in lancaster i was a lesbian and i loved david bowie and then all three of those things were put into one movie, right? With Catherine Deneuve and Bauhaus and Bowie.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: then throw in a little Iggy Pop on top of it. And that was, for me, um, as a teen, you know, I, I loved Bowie, but I hadn't gone, you know, there was no internet. I hadn't Googled him 10,000 times. And that's really when I came to Iggy Pop as a 13-year-old as well. Um, and I think... His collaboration with Iggy Pop on The Idiot and, you know, having the song and The Hunger, it, it, it was such a great moment in the film and such a weird moment in the film, you know, this person roller skating to this song. Um, it's one of the most dated moments in the film in a way, <laughs> but uh, it also really, really works. And, and the legacy of The Hunger and just, you know, there are quotes, you know, of Bowie, you know, forever and ever, right? (laughs) Or no ice, right? (laughs) There are these things that have like just kept going in sort of underground culture, goth culture, queer culture um, that have stayed forever. And um, it it was, I, I had the privilege of meeting Catherine Deneuve later in my, life and I definitely wore my like Catherine Deneuve hunger hat and (laughs) my furry coat and had my pinky ring on and was just like I love you and when I got to hug her it was just like my whole life coming full circle
0: (laughs) that's fantastic well let's take a listen to um, to this music by Iggy Pop here on Pulling Focus Baby Iggy Pop, doing fun time from the soundtrack to The Hunger here on Pulling Focus. Got Tiffany Naiman here, guest in the studio, talking about David Bowie, uh, as she is a David Bowie scholar. Tell me again, you were just talking a little bit about this book that's going to be coming out in about a year and a half, hopefully like summer of 2024, and you were talking about the different like chapters. So can you share a little bit about it so that folks can get excited for when it comes out? <laughs>
2: So it's called Bowie in America. And I was always, as I was sort of talking about before, I'm interested in Bowie's relationship to America because it was definitely a love-hate relationship. And so the the book is constructed through going to different cities in which he lived or created music and looking through a different kind of theoretical lens or topic. And so there's a chapter, of course, of on Philadelphia, Young Americans and Race. And then uh, there's a chapter on Los Angeles and his uh, dabbling in the occult and what that meant to him and how that worked out in the Station to Station record. Um, There's uh, there's a chapter on Detroit uh, and his relationship with Iggy Pop because... Bowie was such a chameleon. They talk about that all the time and shifted his music so much. But um, the one thing, and I think it's th- something that really connected him and Iggy and why he was so fascinated by Iggy is what he couldn't ever really perform was being that kind of balls out American rocker messy thing that Iggy was and that we all love him for, <laughs> right? So he was fascinated by that, right? Um and he could sw- he could do all the other things he could do the electronica and all of that but he couldn't quite do that mm-hmm. you know and um, so those are those are a few of the chapters that are in there
0: well I'm I can't I'm so excited and just, um, to to kind of see you like publishing a book and having this coming out is, is who knew it's <laughs> awesome <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna ja- zigzag here. And talk a little bit about, you know, your work as a as a film producer. So one of the films that you worked on recently is The Glamour and the Squalor. It was directed by Mark Evans. And it is a portrait of an American radio personality, Mark uh, William Collins. And he really rose to prominence in the early 90s as a DJ on the Alternative Rock Station, 102. 10- Seven point seven, the end in Seattle, Washington, and he was really there at the beginning of grunge, and and really in a lot of respects, I think was as a lot of people talk about, responsible for kind of really um, putting putting a spotlight on that on that music, and I and I really enjoyed watching it, being somebody doing a, a show at a community radio station and hearing, you know, kind of people talk about the power that like local radio can have. So um, could you, if you could just talk a little bit about kind of how you got involved in the project and, you know, sort of what, what your role was in, in helping, you know, um, you know, Mark tell this story. Yes.
2: There are two marks in the story, right? The director. And and so Marco is the DJ and Mark is the director. And uh, I met Mark Evans through um, a couple other producer well friends of mine that we've also produced other movies with um ronnie pontiac and Tamara spivey and we had just done a film together called uh viva cuba libre Rappers war um and so mark had come to them i believe and they just said we have the person for you and uh and that's how we met and we really hit it off and he is such an extraordinary filmmaker and worker and just all around great guy and You know, I was never on a mission to be any kind of film producer, um, but I think my skills um, at throwing parties and bringing different kinds of people together really aided me uh, in being good at this. And so I have to be really excited about something. To want to do, making films is really hard, as we all know, and we saw it working at film festivals just to get to that point. Um, and and but this story was so important, I think, to our generation, and it felt like an old untold story um, about Marco. And he's such an extraordinary guy, and he's. I saw in him, and it happens every time we see each other. We just go crazy talking about music and his passion for it, and and also you know what it was like to be a game as closeted gay man during that time in the 90s and what outsiders saw as a very sort of masculine moment with grunge even though there was a lot of other stuff going on and and i think he is how radio is so important or was so important for our generation college radio community radio and radio voices that were taking chances and locking doors and not letting people in that were trying to stop him from playing the music he was
0: playing, you know? (laughs) It was fantastic. And so let's listen to something. Um, It has a fantastic soundtrack. I was just going to
2: say Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, Mm -hmm. who was a really good friend of Mark's and Marco's really had a huge hand in making this soundtrack happen. He did all the, the, also the compositional stuff for it and uh, again, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, (laughs) It was sort of extraordinary, his humbleness in creating this.
0: Okay, well, let's take a listen to this.
3: When we released our album, Marco started playing it. He was the first one to give us a little airtime in the big
1: leagues. That was back when being on the radio was like,
3: call your parents, we're on the radio. You know, or you pull over the car and you're like, we're on the radio.
1: Sheets and life limped along at subsonic speeds. She's love, she's love, she's in my
3: head. She's love, she's love, she's love, you know, she might be dead.
0: Listening to pulling focus here on WPPM, and that was the presidents of the United States doing a live acoustic in the radio studio version of "Lump." And before that, you heard them uh, talking a little bit about what it felt like to be on the radio in the '90s in Seattle, being you know, in you know, interviewed and having their music played by by Marco, the subject of the "Glamour and the Squalor," a documentary directed by Mark Evans and produced by Tiffany Naiman, the, uh, the pulling focus guest here this morning. Uh, Tiffany, anything else you want to add? You say Marco is back on the air in Seattle.
2: Yeah. He has a show on, um, it's K. I always get the letters wrong. KXLU, I believe it was the, I was, it was call letters out of Seattle and you can stream it. And, you know, he's still searching out new music and playing it. And, and he, he did a lot for the, um, I mean, I guess it's in the movie. Um, gay marriage when it was first hitting the poles and things like that. And it's also important to say um, that he is so extraordinary because he keeps trying to stay connected to the music and keeps trying to put it on the radio um, as somebody, you know, uh, uh, that teaches in the music industry. And whenever I start to talk about the radio with students now, they're like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who listens to the radio? Nobody listens to the radio, but people do still listen to the radio. Yeah, right. They, I hope they, so. <laughs> I mean, that's why Any, I we're Anybody hearing. out there?
0: <laughs> oh. <No>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I think what it is is it. It's you know, it, it, it's what we talk about in in film, and it's what we talk about, I guess, in music. It's, it's, and I'm, you know, it's looking toward to radio DJs, film festival curators as kind of guides, people that can actually go through all of this content and help lift it up. Because otherwise, it's just, you know, it's this fire hose of content, you know. And so that's what I appreciate from my colleagues here at, at WPPM or just, you know, other other people that I listen to or curators or people like you doing things at Outfest. It's, it's how I, it's how I discover things. It's like through, through your knowledge and expertise, you know? Yeah. And it's how I discovered things from all those, you know, they were really just
2: people like us, the the radio DJs at Franklin and Marshall college and places like that back in the day. And, and I do like the idea that you say guides um, instead of what people like to use the derogatory term gatekeepers um, you know and I like that much more than influencers mm-hmm. but rather you know guides that are taking our hand to somewhere that we may never have gone without them mm-hmm. right mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> all right yeah I mean and and I guess folks are doing that through and I mean you would know this because you're you know in music industry and you know talk you know talking about that but you know I I guess through podcasting you know there there are folks who are doing that same thing and it's just sort of more uh, I guess it's not it's not you're not having to catch it live on the radio when it's happening versus it's when when the weekly podcast drops or when that mix drops or whatever so um
2: yeah people are definitely doing and they're doing it in different ways and I think that, that we can go back and listen to radio shows is nice. You know, it's not me. I was just telling this story with my black cassette player on top of my clock radio <laughs> trying to get the Culture Club song when Casey Kasem <laughs> was going to play it on Top 40 radio, and that's my only shot for the whole week, you know? Yes. <laughs> so there's a benefit to not having to do that
0: anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, talking about, you know, your your love of music you also are exploring being a musician yourself. You are, you know, doing composing and performing as Neon Gray. Is neon that Neon Gray? Yeah. Tell 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 me about what is what is Neon Gray?
2: <laughs> well <laughs> to be really honest, it was uh My bowling name when I was 15 in Lancaster (laughs) County, Pennsylvania, that I came up with one afternoon when (laughs) me and all my seven goth friends would go bowling because there was nothing else to do in Lancaster. (laughs) And we would give ourselves silly names. And I came up with neon gray. And I thought that's such a, it stuck with me because I was like, what is neon gray, right? But to me, it's always been being a goth kid and maybe a bit morose at times in my life that there's always like a light in those dark shadows of things um so that's what where the name comes from and why I stick with it
0: and t- so talk about um you we're gonna play a little bit of the music but you're composing using a electronic keyboard like what do you
2: yeah i so um i use ableton uh, I use Ableton. Sometimes uh, I'll use GarageBand if I'm traveling and I don't have my push with me or something like that. I like to experiment with lots of different weird instruments and things like that. Uh, when I'm at home, I'll use real instruments and plug them through, and I have a Moog and things like that.
0: Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I just grabbed something, and I know you sent me a couple links, and, and so let's listen to um... – because it's the morning, so let's listen to morning here on Pulling Focus. That's music composed by my guest, Tiffany Naiman, a.k.a. Neon Gray. And that's a piece of music called Morning. And while that was playing, um, Tiffany was talking a little bit about kind of how you kind of compose while you're traveling.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've come to realize I make a lot of music um, on planes and trains and even while I'm driving in my car I know that sounds scary I'm not pushing the Ableton buttons but I'm usually humming into you know my voice notes or something like that there's something about being in motion and over the last few years where I've really started making a lot more music I was teaching at both Stanford and UCLA so and, and running a n- nightclub in Los Angeles. So I was flying back and forth between Los Angeles and San Francisco maybe three times a week. And then um, I fell in love with somebody in Philadelphia. So I fly back and forth and I had a friend that I was trying to take care of who was unwell. So I was flying back and forth. So a lot of my time was spent... You know, and I'm sort of terrified of flying. I have that in common with Bowie. Bowie hated flying. For somebody that talked about the sky and space all the time, um, he traveled by boat and train and car. I found that making music while uh, in the air was really helpful to me. And it also, I think it's made my music much more cinematic because of the states that I'm in. Um, and I didn't know that that's how music was going to come out with me because I'm kind of like a rocker, you know, <laughs> and and you know I like my rock and roll and I like my disco and things <laughs> like that. And it, that comes out in my DJing. But the music that comes out of me just feels much more cinematic than mm-hmm. I than I thought it would. And I think it's because of those spaces where I'm creating.
0: Oh, I, I really liked it. So I'm glad we were able to just share that this morning with Pulling Focus listeners. So it's the hour's gone by which is unbelievable okay. if folks want to uh maybe d- read or learn more about you is there any place to direct them or you know or just kind of keep an eye out I for mean, that yeah, book coming out or
2: you can google me and then the book chapters come up my music comes up at some point you know i have a soundcloud under neon gray you can find me at ucla's website um you can hear the podcasts i produce in different places so i have an imdb page if you want to look at the documentaries i've produced so all right cool yeah i'm definitely not undercover okay
0: well i will drop a couple links onto the pulling focus Facebook page. You can always follow us at Pulling Focus Radio on Facebook. And you can also email me at Pulling Focus Radio if you have any thoughts, suggestions, or ideas for future future guests, future shows. We we Tiffany and I have already decided that we need to do um, a show on Giorgio, right? Giorgio like,
2: Moroder and his soundtracks, yes. And <laughs> just because I think what you're doing, I just have to say, is so cool here,
0: Gretchen. Oh, and thank you. Anytime I can come back, okay. I will. Right, so well. I
2: love Giorgio Moroder. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. so we were just kind of going through the list of soundtracks that he worked on where I was like, wow, no, I haven't really like focused on him. So that could be something really fun to do. Um, we're going to head out with on some more music from David Bowie. This is uh, Philly Loves Bowie Week through January 14th. You can, you know, find all information about the remaining concerts and, you know, Bowie karaoke's and all kinds of things that are going on for the next couple days. And... Why don't you talk a little bit about this piece of music that we're going to go out on?
2: So it's Absolute Beginners, and it is, to me, it's one of the greatest love songs Bowie's ever written. And, and Bowie doesn't write a lot of love songs, right? There may be a feeling of love in them, but they're not directly love songs. And I think there's just something so strikingly beautiful about the way in which we go into relationships and we don't know really what we're doing every time, you know, because we're always doing it with somebody different, right, and it always, it has this feeling of newness and desire for it to, to work out, and it's it's so the core of Bowie to me, because as you'll see in one of my chapters, the Lazarus one, he was so much about hope, and it, it seems weird to say that, because his stuff is always talked about alienation and darkness, but within that, there's always so much hope. And this is such a hopeful song about love to me. And that's why I love it.
0: Oh, well, I'm so glad we got to do this. And, you know, at the, at the beginning of the year and it's giving me hope for this year. So Yay. Tiffany, thank you so much for being a guest here on Pulling Focus, heading out uh, here with music from Absolute Beginners. As always, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, here on Pulling Focus.